0: The the ark brought Noah from the old world, remember, antediluvian, pre-flood, to the new world, post-flood. And it's wonderful that Jesus transports you and I from when we were dead and lost and in trespasses and sin, and he delivers us to light and life and salvation and regeneration in Jesus Christ. And so the ark is a type of, of Jesus Christ and God saved Noah through the ark, God saves you and I through his son. And Noah, just you, Noah had to believe God, he had to build the ark. Noah had to believe God and get in the ark when God invited him in, he had to still choose to get in the ark in order to be saved. The same thing's true about Jesus Christ. You have to believe, you have to enter in, you have to, to, to come to Christ, to to inevitably ride out the storm of God's judgment. It's coming. Whether you die or whether the rapture and then the tribulation happens and judgment from God, every man is going to be judged. And I mean that as human, uh, man, women, boy, girl, man. Everyone's going to be judged, the scriptures say. There's going to be a greater judgment. God judged the whole world and he destroyed it with water. The next time, he's going to destroy it with fire. So again, we see this picture, and we're just waiting, just waiting. At the end of this chapter, we see one verse at the very, very end of chapter 8. It kind of gives us that clue that now we're just awaiting God's final judgment. We're going to live. Uh, Sun goes up, sun goes down. Seasons change, seasons come and go, and we're just going to wait until the final judgment judgment we're waiting for that time right now. Chapter 7 is just a kind of a retelling of the story over and over very repetitious we looked at that last time but it begins notice chapter 7 verse 1 it begins with an invitation then the lord said to noah come into the ark. He didn't say go into the ark he said come. Come into the ark you and all your household because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. He declared the whole generation only thoughts of uh, of their heart was Evil continually, and he looks at this righteous man Noah and says, "You come in." He invites him to come in to the ark. And so, verse seven begins with this invitation. God instructs Noah uh, to to uh, build the ark and how to build the ark and how it's supposed to contain all the different animal species. and And they're going to be, you know, there's going to be this ark ride. They're going to go on this ark ride and. And Noah, you know, hasn't reigned. He doesn't understand what's going on. He's just obedient. He's a great example of an obedient servant. He didn't even know what the future was, but God said it. He believed it, and he acted upon it. Very important for us to see that Noah was a very, very faithful man. It's in verse 11 there of of that chapter, chapter 7, that Noah gets in the ark. And it says he was 600 years, 2 months, and 17 days old. And you read that and you go, why? What's the detail there? Because when we get to the chapter 8, verse 14 tonight, it tells us he gets off the ark when he's 601 years, 2 months, and 27 days old. So now we know that he was on the ark for a year. It only rained for how long? How many days and nights? 40. And then there was like 150 days where he was on the ark. And then he's, then the ark settles. We'll see it settles, and he's on it for months, months, and he sends out the birds. The birds come ba- go and come back, and we'll, we'll see that tonight. But he's on the ark for, for this year. These are the details that were given here in, in chapter 7, verse 11, chapter 8, verse 14, which, again, um, just speaks to the fact that, that they're in the ark with all these animals for that long period of time. And then chapter 7, verse 12 Again, tells us 40 days and 40 nights, six weeks of nonstop rain. It's, it's raining like, I won't even say it. You know, you're thinking of it. After it stopped raining, though, it took all those, that, that extra time. Verse 3 of chapter 8, they stop floating and they settle, And there are three months before Noah could see the top of the mountain. So let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 8. Then God remembered Noah. Hmm. Isn't that an interesting way to start the chapter? Then God remembered Noah. And every living thing and all the animals that were with him on the ark, God remembered that. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from the heaven was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth, so there's this constant flow, flow, flowing off. Think sediment. At the end of the 150 days, the water decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains, on the mountains of Ararat. Not the mountain, but the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. Now, I wanna make some interesting observations about the global flood. I haven't really jumped in there too deep in the, the geology and, and it's just the science part of it, but I really am, and am interested in this, and I think you'll relate, uh, because I think I need to make these points about the flood, mainly because the water has now covered the whole planet for about 150 days. Well, there's water everywhere. That's five months of water. It's rising, rising, rising until water is over the whole planet. There's water everywhere. We saw that back in chapter 7. Look at back at chapter 7, verse 19 with me. And the waters prevailed exceedingly, a great word there on the earth, and all the high hills, not mountains at that time, but the hills were under the whole heaven, were covered. And the waters, verse 20, prevailed 15 cubits or some you know, 25 feet above the highest hill, mountains. They were all covered. So there's only water, and water is everywhere. That's the description that we get here in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And I want you to think with me on this, because I, I just, this uh, when you read the Bible, sometimes God just shows you things. And, and they were always there. It's, it's not the Bible. It's not God. He wants you to know. It's just, you, you just see it. But I want you to see this with me, because it was just an amazing uh, revelation to me, back in Genesis chapter one. And in Genesis chapter one, when we're seeing the world created, it's, there's a wonderful truth. Can you turn that TV on back there so I can watch my notes? A, there's a wonderful truth. Notice behind me on the screen, Genesis one, two. The earth was without form, so there is a planet there, it's the earth, But there's void and there's darkness on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over, notice, the face of the what? Waters. As you go through Genesis chapter one, you see that dry land emerges from the water. But God has just destroyed everything and we're starting over. We're getting a restart of the whole world. God destroys the whole world. Now it's once again, only water over the whole planet. God's looking at his planet, and all he sees is water, just like in Genesis 1, verse 2. And the the reality is that God is really returning the earth into somewhat of an original condition, somewhat. There's still, you know, the plant life, and there's all this other stuff that's been on there for 1,700 years, but still, he's returning it back to this kind of this beginning state. Before God shaped the original earth, It was just water. Water was over the land, over the rock, over the soil. So here in chapter 7 and 8, the earth has basically taken, it's been taken back by God to where it all began. It's all covered with water. And now God's going to reshape the planet. That's what I mean about the geology. This this part of geology, I hope I can do it justice. But the pre- Deluvial world was not like the world that we're living in. It had hills, not mountain peaks. It had just kind of rolling terrain. Um, you have to think of jungle environments You have to, without lots of big high peaks. Just, there were some hills, there were some mountains, but nothing like we see today. And so God covers all of that, and he's going to now reshape the, the original um, earth and make it into what we see and what we experience today. Because this record in Genesis tells us more about why God's destroyed the earth than how he destroyed it. So we we see and can make assumptions based on scientific observation. And this is real science because it's repeatable, observable truth. Wherever you go, and I wanted to ask the question, how many of you have a, have a rock that's got fossils? And how many have a rock that, with fossils at home? Raise your hand. Let me see. So there's one, two. This is Wayne's, by the way. So there's for four, just a few of you. Um, I have one at home, too. It's a different uh, volcanic rock. But um, in all over the planet, this, this was from Wyoming, wasn't it, Wayne. He's out hunting for antelope, and he comes across this rock in Wyoming. It's got shells. You can come up later. There's barnacles all over it, little shells. There's like a big cl- a clam shell right there, very easy to see. But all throughout the planet, you'll see these. Sorry, I broke it. I Anybody have some super glue there? But, but the, 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 here's the point. The planet that we live in now is radically different than the pre-flood world. The pre-flood world had one continent. Now, we studied this before, but look at how the continents kind of fit together. Can you see that on this? We believe, that, that I believe, in what the creation account says in Genesis 1, that there really was, there was no polar ice caps. There was no um, freezing zones. It was the whole earth was covered with a mist. The whole, whole earth was shrouded with this, this water around in its atmosphere. Remember how God created the atmosphere and separated it. It's in Genesis one. But here's just kind of a map to kind of see how it just kind of fits together. And God's going to break it all apart. We have these tectonic plates if you uh, plates if you study geology and you'll see those things. But you can see really on that little that little drawing here how the continents really did fit together, and they were broke apart during the flood. So there's, there's water that's coming from the ground, subterranean water that's coming up, and there's all this water that's falling down. The planet's being shoved, and there's upheaval, and there's volcanic blowouts, and it's just gnarly. It's, it's a reshaping, God is reshaping the planet as we know it. And again, no polar ice caps because of the thick, mist or canopy that covered the whole world, creating a perfect temperature for vegetation, a perfect environment for people to live for. How many years did they live? How many? 900. 900 years. How did they live that long? Because this mist or canopy kept all the UV rays, all the UV rays from entering the atmosphere. Um, there's, uh, there was no disease like we have disease now. It was a perfect utopia. God made the garden and placed man in it. There was no disease. There was no fungus or mold or any of that stuff. It was just beautiful vegetation. And God is going to break it all up, but but before it was broken, there was this canopy and this perfect uh, system there, this constant humid bubble that they lived in on the planet. Animals live longer too. Think about that. If man lived to be 900 years, And Noah was some 900 years as well. All the generations we look at, they they lived, but they died. Chapter 5, it's all about how they lived a long life, and then they died. Think about animals. Animals wouldn't have died in just a few years. Animals would have lived a long, 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 long time too. And that really gives us a reason for the dinosaurs. I haven't really talked about the dinosaurs. But I want you to think about this. Dinosaurs are reptiles reptiles like alligators and snakes and lizards they grow and grow and don't stop growing until they die they don't stop you can read about uh, reptiles that's why you can go down to the swamps in louisiana you know and find a 18 foot crocodile you know They're, those are scary creatures and and think about if man was living 900 years and a reptile could live for centuries how big would they be so I have a picture here, I have a dinosaur. We all know that as a, what, a brachiosaurus or whatever. But think about, there's all kinds of dinosaur fossils. These are from the fossil record. Now, they put flesh on it, that's just a drawing or illustration. But you can go to Dinosaur National Park here in, where's it, Utah, isn't it? Utah, is it where? Montana, that's right, it's in Montana, we went there. And you can see these massive boned uh, fossils in the side of the hills exposed. It's, it's remarkable. Massive animals. How'd they get that big? How come they're not on the ark? How, how come we don't see dinosaurs today? Because they grew and they lived during that time. They, they grew bigger and bigger and bigger. They didn't die. They lived for centuries and just kept growing. So you have these massive animals, dinosaurs, and then think about the mastodon. You know, we they always talk about the mastodon in, up in Alaska, frozen in the ice, and there must have been an ice age. Remember the ice age? But the Bible says that there wasn't any ice age. There weren't any polar caps. There was one continent before the flood that broke up, and there was one temperature because of the canopy around the world. There was no poles, no, no cold zones. And then the tilt and all that stuff came later. All that stuff happened later, But God had this perfect place for people to live, and animals, and they lived for long times, and that's one reason for the dinosaurs. We just don't have them anymore because they were wiped out during the flood. And they're buried in sedimentary layers like shells and marine life. It's always sedimentary layers, and they're buried all over the planet. They're everywhere. It doesn't matter where, where you go in the world, you'll find these. They're everywhere. It's real hard for. I think I broke it again. (laughs) Wayne. Wayne. It's really all. You guys can touch it. I'll just leave it right there. I'll, I'll let you touch it. But the fossil record, the fossil record proves the cataclysmic flood. Pre flood, again, one continent, again, and I showed you those pictures. But during the flood, everything is starting to break up from within, the, the subterranean water. I'm going to show you scripture in just a moment, but, but the mountains that just blew out of the, you know, the, the, the earth level and just went, have you ever driven up to 395 on your way to Bishop? And you see the Sierras, and they look like they just came right out of the desert, right? And they just, whoosh, you know, Mount Whitney and Lone Pine as you drive up to 395. And can you imagine the force it took all across the planet to, Blow these continents apart and all the upheaval and uh, the violence that went on. That, all this happened after the rains falling and the earth's being covered and th- the planet's being reshaped by God with his power and with his fiat. Massive eruptions on the earth during the flood and the earth's crust was changed. That's, that's what we believe, the, the cataclysmic upheaval, the tectonic plates, and then ma- mountains just blowing out of the ground. And the fossil record proves all of those things. With And I love this phrase. We learned this long time ago um, teaching school in our home. Uh, billions of dead things buried in sedimentary layers all over the earth. And what you can go anywhere and you'll find billions of dead things buried in sedimentary layers all over the planet. Go to Grand Canyon. Have you been to the Grand Canyon? And you look at the, the different strata in the Grand Canyon. There's all different stratas. Why? Because we just read about how the water is receding. The water was bubbling and boiling. Think of a washing machine. I mean, blah, blah. and then all that sediment's just upheaval. And then now it's going to settle. It's going to settle and all the animals and all the plant life and, and coal deposits and, and massive you know, vegetation deposits making oil. All of those things happen during the flood and all the pressure and all, the you know, making that, those deposits and those things. Again, science believes that. Good science. It's repeatable, observable. I'm not touching that thing again. But we see that stuff all over the place. And let me just show you the scripture real quick. Psalm 104, verse 6 and 8. This is what the psalmist write, writes. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. Speaking of the world. The waters stood above the mountains... And listen, at your rebuke, they fled. At the voice of your thunder, at the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. The the water went over the mountains. The, the, the mountains are blowing out of the ground, and then they went down into the valleys to the place which you found. The, the water's receding and flowing, flowing and making ravines and, and pulling off the sediment off the mountains, exposing raw granite and just the contours and, and the, all the swells and valleys and things that you would see. That's what the psalmist describes here in Psalm 104. But here's what I love about this. Here's another real great revelation about God in the Bible and you don't really see this but let me point it out to you. The psalmist describes the flood happening at what? The voice of his thunder, he's he's speaking, God is speaking and making things work again. When was the last time we read about God said and there was light? God said, remember? Genesis chapter one. Isn't Isn't that fascinating? And now here in Genesis chapter eight, During the flood, he's speaking, his voice thundered. It says right there in Psalm 104. And the mountains are blasting out and the the valleys are being formed and it's just a, a cataclysmic catastrophe on the planet. So it was God who pushed up the mountains and it's God who drops down the great ocean basins. And the psalmist goes on to say, God filled the basins with the oceans. So he, he formed the deep, 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 deep crevasses of the ocean floor so that all the water had someplace to go flowing off the land, rapidly off the land. Can you imagine? The Grand Canyon was not created, and I don't believe it was created, over billions of years, one grain at a time, flowing through, flowing through. I don't believe that. But what do I believe? That there was a cataclysmic flood. And all this water that's receding, that's what the scripture says, receding quickly, rapidly, and it just digs in and makes a canyon. Makes sense, doesn't it? Mount St. Helens is probably the best evidence for that. We all, if you're my age, you, you saw that, you watched it on the news, you heard about the science of it. It was just remarkable. Because in just a brief moment of time, that mountain blew up and it pushed remember that lake, what was it, Silver Lake, or I can't remember the lake, but it pushed all the water out, it blew up against the side of the ma- all the water, it was a massive amount of water, like more than Big Bear Lake, pushed it all out, and then the water rushed back in quickly and made all these little sedimentary layers. So it's like, hmm, it can happen really fast and rapidly. All the scientists were like, hmm, I guess it can happen. Rather than one grain of sand over billions and billions and billions and millions of years, it was a rapid... Uh, f- outflow of this water that created the Grand Canyon and other canyons like it. So the glo- global flood is the answer for the stratification of sedimentary soils that you see all over the place. Grand Canyon, Kaibab. Uh, it's Kaibab up there in, in uh, Utah, I believe. You, you can go there and you can see the sedimentary layers and you see this stuff that I'm not going to touch anymore. Um, look, we have a picture of some fossils, I think. So here's, you've seen these before. There's fish down there in the lower left-hand corner. There's shells. There's a up in the upper right-hand corner. There's the snail kind of animal. All different kinds of animals that that were trapped in sedimentary layers. And again, they're everywhere. And in the the case of the lower ones, the fish and the, the shells, those things actually came from that uh, place, that kaibab, limestone deposit, which is near the Grand Canyon, at an elevation of 8,000 feet, it's just loaded with clams, and corals, and marine snails, and all the stuff that's on. And you can see the barnacles in this one right here. They're, it's really remarkable. The shells, different kinds of shells, and everything, but they're they're all over the places. And then they were they were quickly deposited all over the planets. How did they get up on those top mount on the top of those mountains? They got up there because all those plants and animals were down on the pre-diluvial world, the pre-flood world, down kind of at a lower elevation, kind of a flatter earth altogether. Then it was broken up, and, and they were raised with the mountains. They just went up with the mountains, and they're on the mountaintops. It just this massive upheaval. There's another picture I think I have of a... Oh, that's a tree. That's actually a tree. Fossil tree, the whole uh, trunk of a tree that was fossilized. And then I have an octopus, I think. Oh, no, that's just the mountains. So there's, I mean, look at the upheaval in those mountains. Wow, the pressure and the upheaval again. All of these things, we see these things all over the the earth. And I read an article today. It was really fascinating. I I get to do my study, and then I'm reading these other articles going, wow, this is really cool. But in the Himalayas, 15,000 feet elevation, a whale. It's, you can go online and check it out. They have a name, I didn't put the name in my notes, but there's a, they have a jaw and, and they have uh, the spine. It's massive, a whale. How'd the whale get up there 15,000 feet? Because the earth broke up and it just pushed, pushed from, the, from low elevations up, up, up these animals, up, up, up they went. So they, now they show up in the fossil record at the altitudes of like 15,000 feet in the Himalayans. So before God does that, In chapter 7, verse 16, uh, it tells us that God called Noah into the ark. They entered the ark. All these animals got in the ark, and then God shuts the door. Chapter 7, verse 16. God shut Noah and his family, all the animals, and then he destroys everything else. Everything else was wiped out. It's all destroyed. Everything but Noah and his family. And their carnival crews, I mean, man. Can you imagine the sloshing, the movement, the motion of this massive arc? there's mountains underneath just the everything's boiling and moving and, and they're just just rocking and man, it must have been quite a ride for their family a whole year inside this this box more than half of it they're floating when I was reading that, and before I, I get to my first point, and we'll go rapidly through this chapter, by the way, when, I, when we finally get to this first point. But I wanted to give you that whole idea, the fossil record, and the whole um, what substantiates what we believe. Creation science believes. There's many, many, many creation scientists that believe and teach that. Um, uh, the secular world does not teach that. They don't believe it. They believe in evolution. They believe in billions and billions and billions of years and random chance. Uh, I I was talking to a, a, a junior high or a high school student here just recently, and I said, if you took your watch and you took it apart, you've heard this illustration. Take every little piece off your watch and put it in a shoebox. I mean, take take the circuit board. I mean, this is a Apple Watch, and it's got all the circuitry in it. But take all the circuits out. Take it all out. Maybe there's a thousand pieces. I don't know. And you put it in the shoebox and start shaking the box. How many years do you have to shake that box to where you get a watch that actually works like this? How many years, do you think? What's the chance of that watch ever working again? What do you think? No chance, is there? But, but the world calls this as science that it just randomly happened by chance. And not only just life, but, but life in a different forms. And a diverse forms of life that we see on the planet. And yet there's no observable, repeatable, transitional forms anywhere. Dogs are dogs, cats are cats. It's you have different kinds of those. You have plants and everything after its own kind. Remember, we study that in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. So Noah's in the ark, he's in there for a year. It's pretty stinky in there. It's been rocking and rolling. And, and if I was Noah, I would think. How long am I going to be in here, God? I've been in here a year with all these animals. I mean, animals, I don't think the animals were like singing choruses, you know, while they were floating. They're probably, whatever animal sounds you can think of. It's chaotic inside the ark, I believe, and he's in there for a whole year, and I wonder if Noah felt forgotten. And the reason I say that is because notice verse 1 of chapter 8, where it says, then God remembered Noah. Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. See, everything else on the outside of the ark was what? What is it? It's dead, it's all dead. Only the animals in the ark at this time. And it says God remembered Noah, which is my point there. And again, when the text says this, God remembered Noah, it doesn't mean that God was off doing something else and Noah and the ark. That's not at all what it's meaning or that's not what it says here. The word remember in the Hebrew is zakhar, zakhar. And it's a word that when you see it in the scriptures, it means that God is taking action on his promises. What this is saying is that God remembered, and he's going to enact his promise now that he made to Noah and his family. Let me give you some quick examples here. When God was about to destroy the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19.29, notice this verse, that God remembered, he remembered him, Zachar, Abraham, and he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. So God remembered, and he remembers promise to Abraham. And then when Rachel wanted to bear children, but couldn't, Genesis 30, verse 22, then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And then when Israel was brought in bondage, and they were there for 400 years in Egypt, Exodus 2 verse 24 and God remembered it says his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So this is really an interesting thought here. It's not do I remember I left something out. This is that God is it's his action of remembering and fulfilling his promise to his people. It's really a beautiful concept when you think about it because he's made a covenant with Noah, remember? We we read that in chapter 7. He made a covenant with him and his family. I'm going to save you. You have to get in the ark, and I'll save you. And so God's remembering his covenant. That's really what what this is saying. So in in, uh, verse 1 here of chapter 8, God remembers Noah, all the animals that were on the ark, and it just points to the faithfulness once again of God, and the application for that, just that truth there. Sometimes we get busy. Sometimes we get sick. Sometimes we get Lonely. Sometimes our marriages are upside down. Whatever it is, but we feel that God has forgotten us. I think about a very loving brother that just lost his wife, and he's going to feel like God forgotten him. He's been forgotten by God because he's lost his mate. A Thirty-eight year marriage, and he's lost his. His mate, and he's going to feel that way. You might feel that way tonight. Maybe there's something in your life, but here's the truth: God never forgets. He always remembers you. You're you're in His thoughts. You're in His mind all the time. God's mind is huge. It's unfathomable. It's it's its capacity. He's perfect. He's God, and so He thinks of you. He knows you, and He's going to act on for your best interest in his time, but it's gonna be in his time. So Noah is in the ark, God, where's God? How long am I gonna be here? But God remembered Noah, I I love that, that phrase there in in verse one. God always remembers, God is always faithful to those that are his. Let me show you a verse here, Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and of good courage, do not fear, nor be afraid of them, for the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you, he will not leave you nor forsake you. You've heard that verse, right? God's always with you. God's always there to comfort you, he's always there to help you. Don't give up on God. God remembers his covenant. He will fulfill his promises. You just hang in there. Here's an illustration. I I love uh, biographies, and there was a man that came to the great um, American preacher D.L. Moody who, who just really ruined the, the, language, the English language. He's talked, he spoke in slang and, and he, when he went to England they thought this guy is so unrefined but then thousands would come to Christ when he preached the gospel. A very wonderful ministry but some guy came to D.L. Moody and he was worried because he said he goes Moody I don't feel saved. I mean how many of us have ever been there? He says, I I don't feel saved. And Moody said, was Noah safe in the ark? And the man said, well, certainly he was. And then Moody said, well, what made him safe? His feeling or the ark? Think about that. You're safe because of what God is and who God is. Not because of you and your ability to pray or not pray, your ability to, to crash as a Christian, to sin, to struggle, to strive in this life, you're not saved. You can't keep yourself, you didn't save yourself. You are kept by the power of God. Isn't that a wonderful truth? It's His power that keeps us, it's His his will, it's His fiat, it's His ability. It's not our feelings that saves us. Jesus saved us only and completely by His grace alone, not by your choice or decision. It's you're, you're saved by grace, not saved by you. So if you've trusted Christ, you can know tonight that God is going to be faithful and he's going to be faithful to his promises and that he's, it's that Jeremiah 29, 11, it's that different verses in the Bible that promise that he's got a future for you and hope for you. So when you feel like God's forgotten, you just stop and think about your salvation and who it comes from. It didn't come from you. It's not about a feeling. It's about your savior. It's about your all-powerful God. And a God that could break up and change the world like he does here in these Uh, verses that are described. He's he's the kind of God I want. He's a powerful God. He's a life-changing God. He's a miracle-working God. That's the kind of God that, that you and I need. You're secure in that. I have this verse here, 1 John 5, 13. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. If you believe in Jesus Christ, this is what this verse says, that you may know, not feel, But know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You can know it. How do you know it? Because you believe in Jesus. You believe in Jesus, so you have eternal life. You know that. That's what the scriptures uh, tell us. And so I love that. I love the truth that that there is going to be a judgment coming, but I've been saved. I don't have to worry about it. My job right now is to tell other people that they need Christ so they can be saved from the judgment that's coming. And so important for us to share that message, to get that message out. But your deliverance, your salvation depends completely and totally on God's faithfulness. Someone said our salvation doesn't depend on our grip on God, but on God's strong grip on us. I like that. It's God's grip. He's holding us. So God remembered Noah. And my second point here, God shut off the water. It says there, after he remembered Noah, um, the living animals, all the animals that were with him on the ark, and God made a wind. That's interesting. He made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. God made a wind. Think about this. Remember the pre-diluvial world: canopy, mist, no wind. There really wasn't wind in the pre-diluvial world. They didn't really have seasons at the end of this chapter. You can go there if you want to. You'll see seasons mentioned for the first time. They're, they're, God put the stars in the sky. That In Genesis chapter uh, 2, it tells us for seasons and times. But they didn't have seasons like winter, cold winter and hot summer. You know, they just had humid all the time. And so God shuts off the water here. And but he does it. He starts with this wind here. So the wind would begin to move the waters. And when wind goes across water, it evaporates, right? And then without the canopy of the sun, the sun's hitting the earth now, that's gonna do what? It's gonna evaporate, it's gonna start to dry up the planet. That's really what this is saying here. The fountains, verse two, of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped. So no more rain after the 40 days. And the rain from heaven was restrained. Verse 3, the waters receded continually from the earth. There's a the, there's the sediment, sediment, flowing, flowing, canyons created. This water's receding, flowing off the, into the deep, the deep oceans. All the water's flowing now. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains, plural, of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. And the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So in verse 4, this is interesting, it says that that the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. How many of you thought that that ark was on Mount Ararat? How many of you thought that? And the reason is, is because we're told that, but that's not what the scripture says. The scripture tells us about this mountain range. And I could go into all the, there's a whole bunch of linguistics here and these different tribes and peoples and how they say it. But it basically comes down to this mountain range that is is where this one mountain, Mount Ararat, is. There's one mountain with a bunch of peaks everywhere. And and it goes from Russia all the way down to uh, southeastern Turkey. That whole mountain range is, is Ararat, that whole area there. Those are called the mountains of Ararat. And northwest Iran, southern Russia, all the way down to Turkey, you can go and do some geography tonight if you want to. But somewhere in those mountains, the ark landed. Not on the top, It it rested in the mountains of Ararat. So God shuts off the water here, the flood subsides, because God remembered Noah. God is fulfilling his promise, his covenant with Noah here. And again, we have this wonderful lesson of God's grace, that God always remembers, that God is, he, he cares about you. Whenever we read in the scriptures and you see those passages, you should just rest in that. And just whatever's going on in your life, just go, oh, I just know God knows. He remembers. He's going to get me through this. We're going to go through this together. And then notice here, we'll go quickly now. Verse 6, Noah sends out birds. I like, like this section. So it came to pass, verse 6, at the end of the 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. Then he sent out a raven, a blackbird, a crow, a raven, which kept going to and fro, just flying, flying, back and forth. Until the waters had dried up from the earth, flying, flying like a raven, flying. And he also sent out a dove different bird than a raven, to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand, and he took her in. The crow's still flying around, flying around. The dove came back, and he drew her into the ark. Verse 10, and he waited, Noah waited another seven days, waited another week, and again he sent out a dove from the ark. Now, the first bird that Noah sends out is a raven here. If you know anything about ravens or anything about crows, you always see them on highways and they're always picking something dead, right? They're just picking on something that died, roadkill. That's what ravens do, they just, they eat dead stuff. So Noah sends out the raven, why? Because he probably knows that that ravens do that, that they're scavenger birds. And Noah is smart enough to know that God told him that he was going to destroy man from the face of the earth, but he'd save him. So Noah's inside the ark, and everything on the outside is dead. So he sends a raven out. And the raven is going to go out, and this is a test. Noah's just doing a test. I wonder what it's like out there. He's not, there's no portholes. There's no way to look out there. He just lets the raven out, and the raven's going to help him understand what's happening outside of the ark. And again, the raven... It just keeps going to and fro, it says in verse 7, until the water's dried up from the earth. So the, the raven goes out, and it just stays. It's just flying back and forth. It's waiting for the land to dry. Maybe it's landing on corpses in the water, maybe, and picking, and so it doesn't need to come back. It's found a food source, and it's just out there, the raven. The raven found death. But then Noah releases the dove. So while the raven is eating dead roadkill, the dove, they're, they're birds that, that uh, roost in trees at night, and then they spend all their time in the daytime on the ground, picking seeds and vegetation, doves. And we have them all over. We have some doves that, that uh, migrate into our trees, these little carrotwood trees in the back of the church. And every night you'll see. And if you go out, Pastor Chris had to clean the patio because there's a whole remnant of dove whatever right there on the ground <laughs> almost every day. Because they come in and they, they spend all their time on the ground. So Noah lets a dove out knowing that he spends his time on the ground, but the dove comes back. Why? Because he can't spend any time on the ground. The raven stays because he's floating. He's floating on dead bodies and corpses and picking, picking. That's, that's the picture that we're seeing here. A raven is an unclean animal. A dove is a clean animal. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 15. They were used for sacrifice. The dove was a symbol of gentleness. The dove is a symbol of of peace. And then verse 8 says, he also sent out from him a dove to see if the waters had receded. He was testing. He wanted to know what was going on out there. Was there any land anywhere? Did the dove get to the ground? And then after several weeks of waiting and testing with these doves, my next point here, verse 11, the dove returned with an olive leaf. I like this. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth and no one knew that the water had receded from the earth so now his test is confirmed because the dove comes back with a with not just a debris not something that was floating on the water i mean there would have been a lot of stuff floating on the water right after all that upheaval but this is really important it says it's a freshly plucked freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth now here's an interesting thing about about olive trees i think i have a picture of the olive trees that I just saw, and Carmen was there, and some of the other people from our church when we went to Israel, you go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And um, when you go there, you see these trees. And these are, these are some old trees, but the guides will tell you that these trees have been around for a long time. They're gnarly looking. There's some older, gnarlier ones than that one there. I, don't, I guess I just took a real quick picture. There's other ones that you see. But olive trees are really interesting. You could flood that tree right there and it would live. They, they're, they're, they have a real high concentration of oil in their, their uh, trunks and branches. They can stay underwater and still stay alive. That's the symbol here of olive trees and Israel and the oil that God produced. There's a lot of symbolism in an olive tree. But that, that the dove found an olive tree with a freshly plucked leaf, not just debris that was floating on the surface is really important. And that's how Noah knew that, that, uh, that the water was receding enough. And these trees, the guy I remember the guy told me, that, trees, that was a sapling when Jesus walked through the garden. These trees are 2,000 years old. At least that's what they tell you. And I, I, there's no reason not to believe that. They're very hardy. Trees, but it's a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. So, while the raven showed Noah that there was death because it didn't come back, it's plucking, it's eating, the dove showed Noah that there's life a freshly picked olive leaf that that dry land was emerging. Verse 12 So, he waited yet another seven days and sent on a dove which did not return again to him anymore. So, what does that mean? Found ground. So now it's foraging. The dove is on the ground foraging. So now Noah knows that there's dry land. So my next point, Noah and his family leave the ark, verse 13, and it came to pass in the 601st year in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry, verse 14. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried and God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you: birds, cattle, every creeping thing, bugs and snakes and reptiles on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So God God spoke to Noah twice in this episode. First, he says, get in the ark, come into the ark. And now he says, go out of the ark. God's giving this command. And then another thing that you see in here is God's commanding him to go and do what God originally intended to happen on the planet with seed and, and after its own kind, to be fruitful and multiply. Man, animal, everything. Again, where it's a restart. The planet got flooded completely. God's reshaped continent's broken apart, reshaped everything, and now he's saying we're starting all over again. It's, it's an amazing story. So when Noah and Mrs. Noah and the kids and their wives get off the ark, they step off the ark, they step into a world that is radically changed. I mean, the mountains were higher, the valleys were lower, The water has receded into oceans. There's a bright, bright sunshine. It used to be mist and a canopy. It's a radically different world. When they saw that, I'm sure they were just in awe. The scripture says here that the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. And I can't help but believe when I hold this in my hand that there's all this dead stuff. When they get off the boat, there's dead stuff all around them. There's dead plant life. There's dead bodies. There's dead animals. Some of it's buried because of the upheaval. Some of it's floating on the surface and just kind of settled. Bones. I mean, it's it's a radically different world. And it's they're decomposing in the sun. It's just a different place. It's not like where they came from. It, it must have been a terrible sight. And, and here's what it proves, that the judgment of God is complete, that, that the judgment of God is, is cataclysmic, that God has done this judgment. And they walk out from the, the place they left and the place they end up and the, the mountains of Ararat. It's a radically different place. And they're like, <gasps> God has carried out and meted out his judgment. And now no more relatives, no more family, no more neighbors. They're all gone. They're dead. And they, they, they're introduced to this new place. So notice what happens here at the end of the story. Verse 20 Noah leaves his family in worship. The first thing he does is God tells him to get off the ark and sends the animals out. He's, Noah it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So Noah's first act when, he, when the boat is, 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 he gets off the, the ark is to worship the Lord. And he doesn't just worship the Lord by singing or lifting his hands. He does something that's, it's it's the most complete sacrifice is this kind of sacrifice, the burnt offering. The burnt offering, when you read in Leviticus, the burnt offering is the offering that, that it doesn't go anywhere. The whole thing is consumed. Some of the offerings were taken and split and the priest would get a portion and the people would get their portion and they'd party with the meat. But the burn offering was not like that. The burn offering was done completely. It was completely burned on the altar. And the the symbolism here is really remarkable because it really means that Noah and his family were completely devoted 100% to God. That's what that means. And so they they offer this. They totally and completely dedicate themselves to the Lord. It's really a, a beautiful act of obedience. It's an act of worship but it's a total and complete act that he's doing. And then notice here, my next point, how God accepts Noah's worship, verse 21. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma Then the Lord said in his heart. I I, I just love the way that, that sounds. Noah's sacrifice, the burnt offering, pleased the Lord. It pleased him. God smelled the barbecue. He smelled it. And he was pleased by what he saw. He saw Noah's obedience and the family. They were worshiping together as a family. And then verse 21, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, God says to Noah. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. So there's the promise again. Noah's sacrifice. It shows And proves that Noah understood that he had to come to God with this shed blood sacrifice. That's the only thing that God would would receive. And he burns these animals completely, the burnt offering. And he understands that when I come to God, I've got to give him my all. And it's going to cost something. It's very costly, the, the shed blood of an animal. And here's the truth. When we come to Jesus Christ, we come to him the same way. And we come to him on his terms. We come to him, and God offers his son as the sacrifice, and we receive, and we believe, and we totally commit ourselves. Being a Christian isn't just a one-time commitment like, oh, this is kind of cool, my friends are Christians, and so I want to be one. It's a full-on commitment to following Jesus and living for the Lord. There's only one way of salvation, and Jesus said it. Here's my last little comment tonight, John fourteen six. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That's an exclusive claim that Jesus made. Tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to know him. Judgment is coming. We're seeing the judgment at the beginning. We know there's a judgment at the end. Tonight is the opportunity for you to get right with the Lord. Tonight is your moment to come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word tonight in this, this wonderful and telling story. And as we read it again, maybe some, um, like I've read it many times, but you reveal so many wonderful truths here. Lord, I'm so grateful. I'm grateful mostly that, that you've called me, like Noah, into the ark, that it was the shed blood of your son, God, died for me and and took my place on the cross. And because of what Jesus has done, I I am set free from the judgment to come. And one day I'll I'll be in heaven glorified with you based on your promise. You, You always remember. And so, Lord, I just pray for these people here tonight. If there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ, that they would put their faith in Jesus, that they would believe on the name Jesus Christ and be saved. And Lord, for those of us that know Christ, Lord, just encourage us. May we walk knowing that you remember us. May we, may we fight the daily fight, Lord. May we stay engaged in, in telling the world the truth about Jesus Christ and God's love. And we'll do so with praise and adoration for you. In Jesus we pray, amen. Let's all stand together.